Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. It uh, contains the account of the council at Jerusalem, which was held somewhere around 48, 50 AD. And it is uh, one of the most significant events that Acts records. It gives clarity to the churches throughout the Roman Empire, and it clarifies the issue of law and righteousness and the nature of the new covenant church. So let's start in verse 1. We'll read down, uh, not all the way to the end, we'll read all the way down to verse 35. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Now this is at the church of Antioch. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way also, in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. See that, so that, pardon me, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. 
but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened brethren, the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also, the word of the Lord. Our Redeemer, the friend of sinners, and the judge of all, you have made us, and you have made us for yourself. It is by you that we exist even today. It is through you. It is for you. We turn to you, and we think of the things that Steve shared from Scripture this morning about you being the God that ruled over everything, even the most frightening events of the uh, scripture to the most encouraging, from the big events of life, the choices of nations, to the small events in our home. And we struggle to see that, but you have explained it in scripture, and we bring our hearts to you to submit to that. You are the one who rules over all. We see it clearly as we look back and read from the book of Acts how you allowed Pharisees who claimed to follow your son to disrupt the peace of a Gentile church in Antioch. And you allowed there to be a council called and you allowed Peter and Paul and Barnabas to give testimony to the great work of mercy that you had done in spreading hope far beyond the borders of The Jews. God, I'm sure that when we look at that, we we don't see, they would not have seen that this was all the wonderful work of a living God using all things for the good of his church. But it was 
So this morning we turn to you and we worship you as the God that really is and the only one that really is. You are the I am, the only existing, the timeless God who calls every moment now. And we creatures of time and place come to say to you, God, that you are worthy of every act of worship, every expression of praise, every weak effort that we bring to show our gratitude and love to the God who gave the law, to the God who kept his law, to the God who has made us to be friends with the law through his son. We pray that you would teach us this morning and guard us against that, temp that temptation, the tendency that we all suffer from, especially as we think of an enemy constantly at work on the edge of our lives, on the edge of our families or church, whispering lies that seem so true. God, we pray that you would deliver us from the tendency to swing from one extreme to the next when we study the things of Scripture. Help us to be wise. Help us to help each other to walk in happy surrender to Christ. But to do it in Christ. God, we need your work today, but so does all this planet. We plead that you would work in the hearts of those that are not able to be here with us this morning. We plead that you would work in the hearts of those in churches down the street or across the world. God, we plead that you would not let men and women and children open your word and see these truths and then close the Bible and remain unaffected. What good is it to add more Bible studies to, the, uh, to our lives, to just accumulate more truths, to be able to say that, that we understood or we saw something that we didn't understand or see before or that our heart was moved. God, it's you that we need. It's you active. It's you here with your people. The world has your presence. You're everywhere throughout the universe, overflowing the edges of any measurement we give, but it's your intimate, active, mediated, covenanted presence that we need. We have no resting place in this world. We have no fountain to drink from in this world if you are far from us. So turn your face toward us, whether we feel like we need it or not, and stretch out your arm and work and do things that can never be reversed by the enemy, no matter how long we live, and help us to be careful with the seed of the word and not to let it be unattended, unapplied, not to let it be choked out by uh, the things that tomorrow will force on our attention, things that we have to pay attention to, not, God, that we would not let it just sit there until other things take it away. All these things, Father, we come to you through your word, and we're asking that you, the portion of your people, that you would give us all we need according to your covenant. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, we've been looking at the issue of following Christ and how that is intertwined with God's moral law. And we've been talking a lot about that and and how to approach that in the right way. You remember a number of weeks ago, I told you that the the, um, libertine, the person who says, you know, saved by grace means just do whatever you feel like doing in the moment. And the legalist who says, well, being a Christian means keeping all the rules. Uh, That's how you got God's love and that's how you'll keep God's love. Uh, Both legalism and antinomianism, legalism and self-indulgence, they both err at the same place. Even though they seem to be opposites, they have really the same problem deep under the soil. And the problem is they have a completely wrong approach to what God has said about the fundamental right and wrong. Last week, we looked at the nature of the law, particularly the, um, the, the, what we call the moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are many wonderful applications in the Old Testament, many applications in the New Testament. This moral law, it existed long before Moses wrote it down. We see evidence of that. And so it continues long after the Mosaic Covenant has passed. We find the moral law mentioned by Jesus, clarified, you know, uncluttered from all the traditions of the Jews and applied to the heart and thoughts and choices of humanity, Sermon on the Mount. We see the apostles take the moral law and apply it to the churches where these fundamental issues of right and wrong are applied within a local baby church, a a new church plant, in light of Christ. How are you going to live? And how does that connect with these moral laws that are found in your uh, Old Testament? Following Jesus Christ will require that we understand and walk the path of the Ten Commandments of God's moral law. We can't imagine that Jesus Christ came, satisfied the law's requirements by what we call positive obedience. In other words, he did everything it required. Also suffered its curse or paid its curse on behalf of his people so that the positive obedience and the, and the removal of, this, of the shame and the guilt of our sin through the cross could be applied to us. We can't imagine that all of that would then result in a kingdom where the king has no authority or a kingdom where those who have been set apart to God through the sacrifice of Christ would then walk in self-rule where where the ultimate goal of grace was that we would then become idolatrous or we would become adulterers and murderers and thieves and and liars and covetous people, that we would be disrespectful to our parents. So obviously the moral law that comes before, that predates Moses and postdates Moses, it is the path that Christ walked in perfect love to the Father. And if you're going to follow him, that will have to be in your life as well. Not just the teachings of Jesus, but the example. Now, this is where we come to our kind of sticking point. And I hope this morning, I mentioned last week, that this morning we would look at some places where the Bible mentions the law 
And it mentions it in, in about as dark and gloomy a way, you know, that is possible. It talks about being under this law and, and, and that's connected with being a slave of sin. It talks about the law killing us. It talks about the law being weak and unable to help us. It talks about the law being against uh, grace in the way certain people were applying it. And so as you read through some sections of the New Testament, it seems like you have this contrast uh, throughout the whole New Testament. You have law or faith, law or grace, law or Christ. Law or spirit. And when you kind of just quickly read through those passages, you've got to come to this conclusion. The law is now bad. It's, it's an enemy. But that will be the wrong conclusion. And we, we want to slow down and look at some of those passages. I, I don't think that we all are anti-moral law or that we all say, well, you know, the Ten Commandments have nothing to do with today. But I want us to be clear why that's not the case. I want us to be able to explain to other people, but also to your own heart, when you consider the Ten Commandments, we want to approach them in the right way. And when those passages that sound so anti-law rise up and say, well, I mean, do you, does God really expect you to do these things? You need an answer for that. Well, I mentioned um, that we, we kind of have this tendency to, swing to extremes, you know, this pendulum swing in our human nature. And we have an enemy that gives us a nudge and makes it worse. So let me give you an illustration, maybe to help you understand why we're even looking at this, at passages which seem to be very negative to the law. Imagine a person that comes to church and they may have heard of Christ all their life. Uh, but let's say they, you know, they come to church because they're, they're young adults, they're out of college, they've got a job, they've got a serious girlfriend, a fiance, and they, they say, well, we, you know, we need, to, we need to go to church. And so they show up in church. And instead of feeling better and better about themselves, they begin to feel a bit worse about themselves. And as the preacher explains who God is and, and what God, what he deserves, uh, his rights, what how we've responded to those rights, they begin to see the existence of selfishness, of sin, in areas that they never thought it was there. And, and they begin to see the nature of that, that it really is against a perfect God. And they begin to grieve. And so our young couple, uh, you know, talk to the pastor or to other believers, and they start to take the Bible seriously. And they hear the good news of Christ, and they turn their back on the things that once captivated them, and they throw themselves on Christ. They take all that the scripture is saying about the finished work of Jesus as their only hope, and they give themselves to Christ from gratitude. They go along for a while, and, and they're learning about the, you know, the doctrines of our salvation, and they're thrilled that being in Christ, they have everything they need for godliness and as they go along, perhaps, they begin to become careless. And, you know, they, 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 have a, they get married, they have children, and you get busy. Sometime in midlife, they look around and they realize, you know, we're not being very careful to walk with the Lord. We can remember days when we were very careful, but we're not very careful now. We've kind of drifted. And, you know, they've just lived by this general sense of gratitude to Christ a lot of talk about grace, but 
perhaps not given much thought to the particular path that Christ laid. And so following Jesus Christ in their mind really is not much more than waking up in the morning and kind of doing what you feel Jesus would want you to do or responding to people in the way you, you think that you should respond and it becomes a very kind of sentimental religion. Maybe we could describe it as well-meaning people lost in a fog bank. They're just not sure where to turn. After a while, they kind of despair that anybody could follow Christ. And then, then they hear someone emphasizing rules. And so they, they jump on that. And someone says, well, the problem is you just didn't understand how important rules are. Rules will fix your marriage. Rules will, will fix your children. Rules or principles will fix your church. They'll fix the nation. And so they grab wholeheartedly onto what they think uh, they have lacked. I had most of what I needed for righteousness. I had, I had Christ, but, but I didn't have everything I needed. I needed these rules, and they are biblical rules mixed in with men's principles. Thinking about the, you know, the history of our own country, I think about you know, the Bill Gothard movement. Most of you are probably too young to remember the Gothard movement, but the older folks in the crowd can remember. A man who never married and never had kids wrote all these books and, and traveled the world teaching these large seminars, thousands and thousands of people coming to hear what are the rules or what are the principles for godly families. And he gave very specific Rules and, and he wrote lots of books with specific lists. And in the last decade, it's been discovered to be living a double life, very immoral. So we grab onto rules and we say, this is what we were missing. We needed lists. And so we've got these principles and these will fix us. And you go along for a while, and especially if your kids are still little, it looks like it's working, you know? The three-year-old, the seven-year-old, the 11-year-old, they're toeing the line. But then 10 years later, they're young adults. They're out on their own, and they don't love the Lord. And you think, well, why not? We did all the lists. And you can despair and think, well, there really isn't any transforming power in Christianity. I tried grace, grace. I tried principles and rules. And, and you swing back and forth. You don't want to spend your life swinging back and forth to the extremes. There is enough truth in both of those extremes. There's truth in both of them. The, the centrality of of grace, but also the importance of obedience and what God says is or isn't obedience. But there's also error in both of those reactions. Galatians helps us, like other passages, but, but Galatians helps us so much in dealing with the problem of right or wrong views of the law. And we don't want to waste our lives swinging back and forth. And we don't want to waste our time as a church in the next months, looking at what God says in his moral law. And we come to it and we either despise it and say, why are we even looking at this? We're saved by grace. Or we look at the Ten Commandments and we run to them saying, finally, this is what I was missing. This will fix us. And both of those are wrong responses. So we're going to look at Galatians. 
It was a book that was so helpful to Luther when he, as a very legalistic monk, professor of theology, priest in the Roman Catholic Church, labored with this question, how can a man be right with God? How, you know, we would say it in modern language like this, how can I fix this? I've got guilt. What do I do with it? I'm ashamed. What do I do with shame? And then what about the power of sin and temptation that seems to be this unwanted companion that follows me every step of every day? Who will deliver me from that? And Galatians was one of the places that God used in Scripture that delivered Luther from those plaguing questions by giving him the right answer. Luther said, Galatians is my epistle. He said, it is my Catherine. What's that mean? Well, his wife's name was Catherine. He said, it's like I'm married to it. It's like my other wife. I've got Catherine von Bora. I've got Galatians. It's so significant to him. And he wrote a really big, helpful commentary uh, on the book. Well, let's look at Galatians. We're going to look at a couple of the, of the key points Galatians makes regarding the law and how it might be wrongly applied so that we don't do that. And that, I hope, will help us understand why Paul says things in Galatians that almost sounds as, as if Paul is saying, the law is just terrible. Stay away from it. All right? But first, we need the historical context. Galatians was written soon after the passage that I read, Acts 15. In the early church, in the early couple of decades, the great question that plagued the church as it was spreading throughout the Gentile world, throughout the Roman Empire, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. From city to city, they're going. Churches are being planted. People are hearing about this. You know, Peter goes to Cornelius. He He's told by God in that vision, do not call something unclean that I now call clean. So as the church expands, as the kingdom of Christ is expanding far beyond the, uh, the borders of Israel, the dam is broken, mercy flows from Israel out to the world, just like God said it would. As that's occurring, there's this plaguing question. And here's the question. How Jewish should the church be? to be really pleasing to the Lord? Or how Jewish do you have to be to be fully saved, to be all the way rescued? And it's a natural question. The temple still exists. You know, there's still Christians who are going to the temple to worship. Uh, Is that what God requires? If a Gentile comes to Christ, does he have to embrace everything that's Jewish? After all, The Old Testament is the only Bible we have at this moment. So do we need Jewish customs, Jewish dietary laws, Jewish ceremonies, Jewish worship calendar? Do we need, uh, you know, Jewish circumcision? Do we need these things plus Christ? So that's the struggle. It really touches the heart of Christianity. It's not about culture or you know, better ways of being godly people. It, it, it's asking questions that are at the heart of a Christian. Well, we have the council in, in Acts, as I mentioned, and here's how it came about, just quickly. Paul and Barnabas have gone away. They've been sent out by the church of Antioch, which is up north near in Syria, north of Jerusalem, which, by the way, 
when you read your Bibles and it says that people went down from Jerusalem to a town that's up north, don't think that the Bible writer didn't know his geography. It's that Jerusalem was up on a hill. And so it, it's just the colloquial way of the Jews speaking. You always go down from Jerusalem and you always go up to Jerusalem. So in the passage we read, they went, they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, they went north. And then when they went from Antioch down south to Jerusalem again, it says they went up. In case you're wondering. All right, that one's free. All right, let's go. Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church of Antioch in their first missionary journey. And as they're journeying, and God is giving so, so much evidence that the Gentiles also are included in this great redemption, uh, they get back years later and they, they show up at Antioch and they give the home church that sent them their missionary report. And while they're giving the missionary report, some Pharisaical Jews who also claim to be followers of Jesus from Jerusalem have come to Antioch to explain to the church at Antioch, which is mainly Gentile, that they need to be a bit more Jewish if they want to be sure to be right with God. So to be fully Christian, if you're going to be fully saved by the Jewish Messiah, then you need to be more Jewish. So when they come and say that, bad timing for them because Paul and Barnabas are there and Paul and Barnabas immediately enter into a heated debate to, to hammer out this issue. How Jewish do you have to be to be right with God? Jesus plus or just Jesus? Now, because of the debate, uh, the church at Antioch felt that, you know, what we need, we need the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to consider this and kind of give one answer to the church. The danger is not that Paul doesn't understand the gospel or that the church of Antioch doesn't understand the gospel. The danger is that as the gospel spreads, there's going to be a division in the churches. You're going to have Jewish Christianity and you're going to have Gentile Christianity and you know there'll be this continued division. So they go, they go down to uh, Jerusalem And in Galatians, Paul gives us more information. He says, I went down with Barnabas and Titus. Now that's important because Titus is a Gentile. Now he's not a Gentile who has one Jewish parent. He has two pagan parents and he was born a pagan. He's not circumcised, but he's a believer. And he's traveling with Paul and Barnabas and sharing the gospel. So Titus is kind of like... He is the embodiment of all the argument. Is Titus right with God as he is or is he not? Does Titus need anything more to really live a holy life or does he have all that he needs? So the three of them go uh, along with others back to Jerusalem with the Pharisaical folks that are, you know, sharing uh, their views And there's going to be a big meeting. Paul tells us in Galatians 2, verse 2, that this was not just the choice of the church in Antioch, but it was by revelation. In other words, God made it very clear in some supernatural way, Paul and Barnabas are to be at this meeting. So they go. When they get there, Galatians tells us that Paul met privately with the apostles that were still in Jerusalem, who were going to make up the council. 
This is 14 years after the first time he came to Jerusalem. He hasn't been there in 14 years. He's saved. He goes. He meets Peter. He tells Peter what God has done in his life. You know, God has shown him this gospel through Christ. He sees it in the Old Testament. Peter is thrilled to see that. And then Paul goes off and does 14 years of ministry, comes back now for the council, meets privately with the leaders and shares how they're going about missions to make sure that everyone's clear and that everyone's agreed. This is the biblical way. And they, they are glad to hear it. They are in complete agreement with Paul. Well, then the meeting comes and these Judaizers, um, I'm going to get warm now. These Judaizers stand up in the meeting and they say, no, look, guys, we got to be careful. These Gentiles, they've got to be more Jewish to be fully saved. And after they sit down, then Peter stands up and says, listen, you know that the Lord sent me to Cornelius. I've already given in chapters preceding. I gave you the account. God is saving the Gentiles. He is giving them the Holy Spirit. And they are being saved just like us. Faith in Christ, not law keeping, not Mosaic law. After Peter sits down, then Paul and Barnabas get up and they say, yes. And then they give the history of what they've seen. We can tell you about so many Gentiles who, by faith in Christ, have been given the Spirit. We have seen miraculous things. God is saving the Gentiles. And he's saving them the same way he saves us. At the end, James, as the representative of the apostles at that point, he speaks authoritatively. He clarifies the situation for all the churches. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to have the Mosaic law. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to make sacrifices. You don't have to gather at the temple in order to be right with God. Nothing needs to be added to Christ. Now, he does then give them some guidance. And we read it in the chapter 15. We read the actual event, and then we read the letter that is sent out. And basically, the advice is this. Everywhere you go and preach the gospel, there's going to be a synagogue. And there's going to be a lot of mosaic literature read. And these Jews take that seriously, which they should. And if you go in there openly flaunting your liberties, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols, you know, um, ignoring, you know, eating meat that was, uh, that, you know, that has blood in it or that's been strangled. In other words, going against the dietary codes then you're going to, it's like you're going to slam the door on Christianity between you and the Jews immediately. So it's not for justification, but it's for being able to bring the gospel to the Jews. Don't do that. And don't live immoral lives. And of course, that has more than just the Jews in mind. You know, be careful that there is a holy life and that you put away that old way of living that the Gentiles have. And be careful that you don't, you know, just poke the bear of Judaism by flaunting your freedom from all of their mosaic, you know, ceremonies and dietary laws. And so they, they are agreed to do that. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and they give the answer. And the church at Antioch is thrilled. Christ is all we need. All right. By the way, Titus, who went with them, When he goes, he's uncircumcised. When he comes back to Antioch, he's uncircumcised. 
They made it very clear, Titus does not need to be circumcised to be right with God. Titus receives, by faith in Christ, all he needs. And that, he becomes then, you know, in a sense, the poster child for every Gentile. You do not have to be Jewish or have circumcision or keep the ceremonial dietary calendar laws in order to be right with God. Well, that was what was going on, and Galatians is written because sadly, after the council is convened and the letter goes out, the Judaizers, those in the churches that say, no, we do need to be Jewish, they continue to go from church to church and to explain to the people that they don't really have everything they need for the Christian life until they add circumcision and ceremonies and dietary laws that go with the Mosaic uh, law. And so when you read the New Testament, that's why so often you find Paul having to speak pretty strongly about the law. There are two problems that he, that we could say occur in the New Testament with the law. First, bringing aspects of the old covenant into the new covenant, which do not belong in the new covenant because they were only designed for the old covenant. And once Christ came and fulfilled what the old covenant was pointing to, once, once the substance, Christ, came, the shadow is no longer necessary. So a great deal of the Mosaic law has been fulfilled in Christ. And if you continue to try to use that with hopes that that would make you even better, then you've totally misunderstood the gospel. That's one problem. But there is another problem. This is the one that we face as well as them, and that is wrongly applying or abusing elements of the old covenant that do come into the new covenant. So the moral law that predated the old covenant and exists today. So you could take the law and say, okay, this came before Moses. This lasts long after Moses. This is the unchanging expression of what is right and wrong. This is based on God's character. So it doesn't alter with old or new covenant. Right. And then you bring it into the new covenant. Fine. But you misapply it. And you say, if you keep these laws, you'll be fixed. You'll be great. That's how you become a great person in God's eyes. Is just do these better. And that's a misapplication. And in Galatians, we have a mixture of that bringing things that shouldn't be from the old covenant into the new covenant Christian life and bringing things that should be, but misapplying them. So let's see if we can see that. First of all, what's at stake? What was at stake when Paul wrote Galatians? What's at stake now when you read Galatians? Because this problem doesn't go away. It just changes the way it looks on the outside. And what is at stake is not Jewish culture versus Gentile or, you know, views of how you know, to be better, more Christ-like people. What is at stake is the gospel. Now, if you have your Bible, you're going to need to keep it open to Galatians because we're going to look at a number of passages this morning quickly. But let me just point these out to you. Look at chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. So Galatians 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. Paul explains what really is at stake here. And if you understand that, then you will understand his strong language that comes later. Look at verse six. I am amazed 
that you are so quickly deserting him. So whatever's happening, it's not just opinions on secondary issues. They are on the verge of deserting Christ himself. So I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's another hint. We're not just talking about a different view of Christianity. We're talking about a completely different gospel. Law, law righteousness, self-righteousness versus Christ righteousness. Verse 7, which is really not another. It's not another gospel. There aren't two options. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's not another gospel, really, because there's only one good news. It pretends to be, but it's not. It's actually a distortion. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So it's another gospel, not the gospel of Jesus. It really isn't good news. It's a distortion of good news. Actually, it's a gospel that is contrary to the true gospel. If you follow this, you are abandoning Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even one hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. And he's talking about those, he says, who snuck into our church meetings, spying out our liberty and trying to bring us back into slavery to the old covenant, to those aspects which don't belong in the Christian life. So circumcision, ceremonial laws, dietary laws, all that. And Paul says, we did not for one hour give them an inch. Because what's at stake is the gospel, the truth of the gospel remaining with the churches. If Paul fails here and says, well, I mean, I know, you, you, you have a good point there. Then the gospel is distorted. A false gospel is embraced. Something contrary to the true gospel. And what is sent out to the churches from here on out as Paul and Barnabas minister, it's not the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, and we'll get to there in a second, who they're talking about. He's talking about Peter and some Judaizers. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So, Peter... If you're going to put all the ceremonial laws and circumcision and and dietary laws as a requirement for righteousness on these Gentiles, you're going to have to explain how it is you don't do those anymore. You you freed yourself from that, but you put it over on them. The truth of the gospel was at stake between Paul and Peter. Now, let's think that gives us a good illustration. Verse 11 of chapter 2 through verse 14. Peter comes to Antioch, all right? So this is the church that had the false teachers say, hey, you got to be more Jewish. They go to the council. They bring back the news with the letter. Great news. You don't have to be more Jewish to be right with God. Then Peter shows up and things are great. 
He's sitting with the Gentiles. He's eating with them, which goes against all the Jewish traditions. And he's there with them until a delegation uh, of the, you know, of people who think they're significant, the pharisaical element of the church in Jerusalem shows up. And when Peter sees the, the guys in suits coming to church, he scoots over to the other side of the room and only hangs out with the Jews. And the guys from Jerusalem show up. Now, this is not James and the apostles because James has already made it clear the Gentiles are not dirty and Jews are clean. All right. That's old. So Peter is living as if the gospel hasn't really, really cleaned up the Gentile Christians. They're still Gentiles. They're still dirty. They're not quite clean because they're not quite Jewish. Peter knows this is wrong. He argued for this, but Peter again is swayed by fear. He scoots over to the Jewish side of the room. Other people, when the suits come in from Jerusalem, they scoot over to the Jewish side of the room because they're Jews too. Even who? Barnabas. Even Barnabas, who's risked his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles, is now over on the Jewish side of the room. And Paul, the Jew of Jews, sees it happening and calls out Peter in front of everybody and condemns his behavior and points out that he is not just a little afraid of the the Jews. He's not just more Jewish than he is Gentile, so he's sitting with his folks. He's changing the entire gospel. He's saying that Christ isn't enough to make these Gentiles as clean as these Jews. And so Paul has to be really firm with Peter because Peter is about to distort the gospel. Now that's, that's what's at stake in Galatians. You have to understand that or you won't understand why does Paul say the things he does. So let's look at a couple of things together. First, the nature of justification. Is it by faith and promise or is it by rule keeping? And you find this in chapter 2, verse 16 and 19. And you find it again in chapter 3, verse 10 through 29. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 19. In verse 15, he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So Paul's talking to the Jews. Look, Jewish Christians, we're Jews. We weren't pagan Gentiles. Verse 16, nevertheless... Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, not by the ceremonies of the law, not by circumcision, Abrahamic covenant, not by dietary laws, not by worship calendar, and not by the moral law either. No person is justified. No person earns forgiveness with God by keeping any or all of these aspects of the law Obviously, we can't keep them perfectly. So how are we right with God? But through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. All right, so down to verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What in the world is he saying? Nobody is right with God by keeping all the rules. That did not earn you God's love 
and justification. It's impossible because once you sin once, you have violated the law and no violator of the law can ever expect the law to reward you with eternal life. So it's hopeless to go back to law if you're thinking the law is how you'll make yourself righteous with God. And then Paul says that strange statement. And Paul, by the way, is saying, that's the way it is with us Jews. And we were pretty good people. We went to the right church and we read the right Bible and we didn't worship a rock or a tree stump. So much more for the Gentiles, guys. Their only hope is Christ. Then Paul says, through the law, through the law I died to the law to live to Christ. That is, the law showed Paul he was a sinner. The law pointed to the coming of a Messiah. The law was obeyed by Christ. The anger of the law, the curse of the law, which is due to every sinner, Christ suffered for his people. So the law put Christ to death by the plan of God. And by that outworking of everything the law was pointing toward in Christ, by that outworking, Paul the Pharisee is dead. He died with Christ. He is alive with Christ. He's washed by Christ. He is supplied through Christ. Romans 6 and 7 and 8. So the law killed Christ. That was God's plan for providing righteousness. And the law, it kind of killed me too. And the old me is gone. And being united to Christ by faith, I live to him. Romans says this in chapter 3, that the law does not justify anybody. Keeping the rules does not earn you forgiveness. What does the law do? It silences us. It shows us you have nothing that you can say to God on your behalf to somehow change his mind about your guilt. But Paul goes on in Romans 3 to describe a righteousness that comes apart from your law keeping. And it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And of course, that's Paul's treasure. Philippians 3. I count all my Jewish stuff to be lost compared to having a righteousness that comes through faith. The righteousness of Christ. Faith believes and receives. Faith unites us to Christ. And we share then in all that he's done for the sinner. Now, Paul drives this home with the example in chapter 3 of Abraham. And we've talked about these things, so let me just give you the quick picture. Abraham is the picture in a Jew's mind. He's the first Jew. He's the one that God made a covenant with. You know, there was no Jewishness prior to Abraham. There was no Israel before Abraham. He's the father of it all. So in this covenant with Abraham, Abraham is declared to be right with God by God's gracious love. He is providing a righteousness for Abraham, not by keeping all the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law didn't exist, but rather through faith. 
All Old Testament believers saved the same way, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah who would be the Lamb of God. They hope in God and what he says alone and not in themselves. And that faith is the way they receive righteousness. Law-keeping, that flows out of that. Now, in chapter 3, he talks about law versus promise. And he makes this point. If a promise is made to you, how do you get what's promised to you? Hmm? I have a birthday present for Tyler. He's sitting in the back. You can all look at him later. Don't embarrass him now. Tyler. Tyler and Katie are visiting. I have Tyler's really late birthday present, which is the only way people get birthday presents for me. And it's not very big, so don't get excited, Tyler. But it's good, all right? I have this little birthday present for Tyler. I say, Tyler, I got a birthday present for you. I'll give it to you afterwards. What if right after the service, I see Tyler outside picking up trash? And I say, Tyler, what are you doing? He said, I got to work. I got to work to get what you said you'd give me. But if there's a promise of a gift, how do you get it? You receive it, and faith is the only way to receive anything from God because faith quits looking at you for the hope and looks outside of you to God and what he's promised through the finished work of Christ. And taking God at his word, you risk everything on the fact that he won't lie to you. So you receive a promise. You receive a gift. Remember Romans 4? Paul Talks about a righteousness that comes through Christ by faith. End of Romans 3, chapter 4. This is not a new idea. This is the idea that has always been. This is the only way to be right with God. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Take Abraham. Abraham received the free gift of righteousness through faith, through trust of God. And Paul says there's only two ways to get something from God. You can either receive by faith what's given, or you can work for wages, which are not gifts. If at the end of the week, your boss hands you a check and says, well, I got a gift for you today. And you think, wow, like a bonus? No, it's just your normal paycheck. And you look at it, you say, it's the same as every week. It's based on the hours I worked. And, the, and, and your employer says, no, it's, it's, it's a gift. Well, it's not a gift. It's a wage. Paul writes to the Galatians and he warns them, you've got to make up your mind here. You are either perfect in the sight of God without stain or shame or guilt in the sense that your position with him is perfect. The law will never condemn you. God will never cast you out. And that is because you are in Christ Now, you either are going to get into Christ and find that perfection through faith, and that's freely given to you as you entrust yourself to him, or you're going to work for it by law keeping. But you can't have both. It's one or the other, which is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 21, those strong words, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So if you're going to fix yourself by keeping the rules and following Bill Gothard or whoever is the new Bill Gothard, this is how we make good families and this is how we make good people and this is how we make good churches and this is how we make good nations. And it is not Christ 
that is your hope, working that out, but it's a set of principles, even biblical ones, then you have to say, actually, guys, Jesus died needlessly. We could have fixed ourselves if he'd have just given us a chance to try a little more. Law or faith to be right with God? Faith. Second, law or spirit to live right with God? The work of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he has been sent by the Father and the Son when the Son is raised from the dead, ascends to his throne, is seated by the Father, and the book of Acts says that they send the Spirit to the church. That Spirit, that Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, is who saves. He is who fixes you. He's who fixes marriages, children, churches, and nations. And yes, he does use tools, but it's not the tool that's my hope. It's a person. It's not a principle that I follow that fixes me. It's a person. The Spirit makes you alive in Christ. He enlightens you. He sanctifies you. He certifies your adoption. He intercedes for you, from within you. He seals you for Christ. He is the earnest or the down payment of a greater enjoyment to come. He is the first fruit. Placing us in Christ, he is providing every moment of every day all the desire you need to obey and all the ability you need to obey. How do you get the Spirit? And then Paul, look at chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So, the Spirit is the hope. He is the one that guarantees that salvation freely received from Christ's finished work through faith will not produce a self-indulgent, disobedient life because he moves in and he changes you and he applies everything the father planned and the son purchased. So Paul says, that's pretty important. How are you going to put sin to death? Later in chapter 5. He talks about the works of the flesh. And basically, that's just the opposite of the Ten Commandments. Idolatrous, lustful, arrogant, cruel. But by the Spirit, you'll put those to death. And then the fruit of the Spirit, which is just the qualities of Christ. And then he talks about by the Spirit, you will be enabled to love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, for the sake of time, let me say it like this. You need the Holy Spirit to transform you, to make you alive, to put you in Christ, to apply all Christ has given you. And you need the Spirit, not just for the beginning of Christian life, but for every moment afterwards, until the very end of the Christian pilgrimage on earth, until you're perfected. The Spirit is the one who saves you. He is that that person of God that's been entrusted with this. Now, If he's so important, if he's so necessary for putting sin to death, 
for loving, which the Bible says love is defined by God's law. Love to God and love to humans. Well, that's shown in the right and wrong. And you remember what John said to the New Testament church there. It's by love that we know we're Christians and we know we love because we obey God. Now, if the law could be summed up in one word, love God and people, love And the Holy Spirit, chapter 5, is said to produce in you a life of love, which is the fulfillment of the law. You do understand that what he's saying is this. By the Spirit, if you will walk with the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not break God's laws. You will not go against your God. As you walk by the Spirit, to the degree you're walking by the Spirit, to that degree he's delivering you from that sinful lifestyle. And to the degree that you're walking by the Spirit, to that degree he is enabling you to love God and people. In other words, it is the Spirit who makes you able to walk the path of obedience. He doesn't replace the path. But if you think the path is your hope, then without the Spirit, then you've lost it. You've turned away from your hope. The path doesn't help you to walk it. It's the spirit. So Paul makes that argument and he says, okay, if the spirit is that important, how did you get them? Did you keep enough rules so that you kept, let's say, 95% of God's law? And then God said, I'll give that person. So Chuck keeps 95. He gets the spirit. Elizabeth keeps 93. Mm, Keep trying. We'll get you there in a second. Okay, now Elizabeth's at 95. Ron's at three. I'm just picking it wrong because he sits on the front row and he suffers. All right. Full sanctification through front row seating. Do you see that that wouldn't make any sense? If I offer enough dead animals to Jesus, if if I eat the right diet enough, even if I keep the Ten Commandments enough, well, that won't bring you the Spirit. The Spirit came... Through the preaching of the gospel, the finished work of Christ, and you embraced it by faith. And that is how a person has the spirit at work in them, not by rule keeping. So why would you think that starting the Christian life, I'm forgiven by grace, but I finish by good works. Why do you think that that that's the way it is? Mr. Roberts has said it when he preached with us many times, the way in is the way forward, or C.S. Lewis, the way in is the way up. Again, if you take time to read chapter 5, you'll see that the Spirit doesn't deliver you from doing right and avoiding wrong. He enables you to do right. Now, Now, Galatians only gives you six or seven verses on that. If you want to see Paul's full explanation, go to Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Explain how being in Christ... And having the Spirit, not only are your hope for justification, but are your hope for living the Christian life, for walking the path of obedience. Well, Paul goes on to say, well, why, what does the law do? And he says what we've looked at so many times before. The law, he says, especially in chapter 3, is a tutor that shows you how far short you're falling, how weak you are, And he grabs you by the hand and he takes you to school. Rich people would have a paid servant, a tutor, who would take the child. Literally in the Greek, it's the like the child leader. 
take the child by the hand, because the child's too young to walk to school on their own, and walks them to school, and at the end of the day, picks up the child and walks the child home, and that's the law. It doesn't replace the promise of grace received through faith. It leads you to Christ by showing you he's your only hope, and you receive that. Do you understand why Paul says these severe things about the law? Chapter 2, verse 17. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ the minister of sin? May it never be. For I, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so I might live to God. Paul says to the Galatians here what he says in Romans chapter 6. I'm preaching a righteousness that comes through the finished work of Christ received by trusting that Christ. Does that make me a preacher who promotes sinful lifestyles because you're not saved by keeping the rules? Not at all. You have to read Romans 6 for the long explanation. But Paul warns them. If I go back and rebuild what has been destroyed. If I go back to the old covenant and try to make myself a perfectly right person, keeping rules, instead of walking in dependence upon Christ to enable me to obey those rules, if the rules go fixing me, if the ceremonies and the circumcision are needed for holiness, I'm rebuilding what was already torn down and then I am a sinner. And if I do that, I would be, like Peter, promoting sin going back to the empty hope. Chapter 4, verse 9. We're almost finished. So if your thinking cap has fallen off your head, hang on. Look at this statement. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I labored over you in vain. Speaking to the Christians. Has all my preaching been worthless? I thought you embraced Christ. What are they doing? Going back to the weak elemental things. Going back to the basic things of Judaism. Why? Why, Jews and Gentiles in Galatia, are you believing the liars who say you need to add that Jewish stuff to Christ in order to be right with him, in order to walk with him? Do you need the ceremonies and circumcision and dietary laws? Do you need the calendar of which days are are supposed to be special feast days and fast days? Is that how you're making yourself right with God? If so, he says, I've labored in vain. You've become the slave of something that can't help you. One more passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Through four, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the Jewish ceremonial law, to the circumcision as if that's going to fix you. Verse two, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So again, Paul's not saying you're free from the moral law. He's saying... If you go back to the, Jew, to the Mosaic law, which has been fulfilled and set aside and is not supposed to be part of the New Testament Christian life, like circumcision, verse 2, 
Christ will be no benefit to you. And I testify again to everyone, every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You who have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Those are some pretty strong words. So if you obey the Ten Commandments, if we teach about the Ten Commandments, have we fallen from grace? No. Again, he's talking about the ceremonial aspects, the things that are already fulfilled, the things that have no place in the Christian life. He says, if you're circumcised, Christ isn't anything to you. You're doomed. Why? In this context, it's the Titus issue. You Gentile Christians, if you believe the lie that you have to be circumcised like the Old Testament Jew in order to make yourself right with God, then you have distorted the gospel. You have abandoned Christ. You're hoping in a Jewish symbol of the old covenant. It's gone now. You've fallen from grace. To go back and to hope in those things which Christ has already fulfilled, hopeless. As we approach the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks, these are things we don't want to do. You, you cannot follow Christ without the Ten Commandments. That's the path for His feet, for our feet. That's the only path the Spirit will lead you on. You cannot imagine He would lead you on the path of idolatry and adultery and murder. But how you approach that law, how much you bring over from the Old Covenant, and the right stuff that we bring... How does it apply? There's right and wrong ways. Let me give you a guy named Jeffrey Wilson's summary of the Christian and the law. He says these three simple things. You can approach the law with Christ. The law has pointed you to Christ. The law shows you your need for Christ. The law law is like the tutor that guides you to Christ. It did that for Israel. That's what it was designed to do for the nation as a whole. And it happens in every individual Christian heart. The law strips me and exposes me and then shows me the only one who can wash me and clothe me. The law with Christ, after I come to Christ, all that ceremonial stuff, all those specific things that were limited to the old covenant, They were pointing to Jesus. They're fulfilled. But what about the law that came before the old covenant? The moral law. Christ with Christ. That moral law is the path of happiness that Psalm 119 talks about. That's the first approach. The law with Christ. The law without Christ. So you keep the law and you fix yourself instead of trusting what a dead Jew said. Because... You're more confident in what you can do. I'll be a good person. Third, the law against Christ, and really, number two and three, kind of, they're in the same category. With Christ, without Christ, how you think of the law against Christ. The law becomes a substitute or an additive to what Jesus has done. This will fix me. This will fix my family. This will fix my world. But it doesn't. It shows our need of Christ and it points a path of happy obedience. But it's God that fixes. And so it becomes a contrary gospel if you add anything to Christ. It is the law against Christ.
So as we approach the law in the coming days, we want to see it for what it is, not abuse it, not disdain it, but to walk with Christ on it by His Spirit. Hebrews closes with this doxology. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.